Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Across the Rainbow, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about gender equality, its past, its present, and its future. I'm your host, Lee John Greco. Today we're speaking with Dr. Jayaprakash Mishra. He has a PhD from the Indian Institute of Technology at Hyderabad, and he's the author of Queering Emotion in South Asia, Biographical Narratives of Gay Men in Odisha, India. Dr. Mishra, thanks so much for talking with us today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me here. So before you get into the study, set the stage for us. Mm -hmm. What was going on in India's socio-political climate a decade ago? I'm really glad that you opened up the conversation with this question. Um, To uh, give you a little bit of uh, context about the study, this study is situated in a socio-political climate marked primarily by uh, two events. First, on 11th December 2013, the Supreme Court of India, which is the apex court, overturned the Delhi High Court's judgment against Section 377 of IPC, thereby recriminalizing same-sex activity. Second, the political party that has been advocating that homosexuality is against Indian culture and is imported from the West took to power at the center. And because of these two events, the expectation of Section 377 of Indian Penal Code being read down through a parliamentary process kind of ceased. So this study started in a socio-political climate charged with hopelessness. However, such hopelessness also led to a positive outcome. The resistance against the heteronormative forces became more systematic, organized, and structured. Uh, Non-governmental organizations, lawyers collective, the queer community, and also the allies congregated and NAS Foundation filed a curative petition against the Supreme Court's judgment. Such responses from the Indian civil society provided further impetus to media coverage, discussions on various forums, and also numerous queer pride parades uh, and events that brought visibility to the community. Um, My brief stint in queer academic and activist circles in southern Indian state of Telangana and Karnataka by 2015 also offered me an insight into the despair, anger, and some hope among the people uh, from the queer community. So the discussion around queer scholarship focused um, on the anti-sodomy law, state oppression, the social stigma, And though such mobilization played a very important role in the fight against criminalization of homosexuality in the legal discourse, but such events, meetings, and discussions are also primarily organized and attended by uh, educated, elite, English-speaking, city-bred queer people who are mostly out in the public or were quasi-closeted. So such exclusions have been discussed by... um, uh, many people, including Aniruddha Datta, as metronormative, meaning queer discourse centered on urban lives and experiences. Although these groups manage to attract interest of a specific section of people, the absence of quote-unquote common gay man was also noticeable, implying that most of these spaces systematically ruled out the existence of gay men who who may not eventually want to uh, become activist, may not think of closet as necessarily regressive or may not look for chosen family. And these are people whose stories may not necessarily conform to the standard uh, transnational or global template of 
coming out to parents, natal family, looking for a queer community or uh, seeking a partner. And such realizations uh, also encouraged me to explore the experience of gay men from semi-urban and rural pockets of uh, Odisha. So a lot to dig in there. Uh, You mentioned that discussions around emotion, particularly guilt, remain heteronormative. Uh, Before we get into why those discussions, just tell us, what does it mean? um, What does queering emotion mean exactly? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this question. (laughs) Well, the title Queering Emotion in South Asia seemed really ambitious when I decided to use it for the paper. I Pulled this, I pulled this title of the paper from one of the chapters of my doctoral thesis, where I discussed three different kinds of emotion in the lives of gay men uh, in Eastern Indian state of Odisha, where I actually did my field study. So broadly, I discussed how gay men, after losing someone with whom they were intimately involved, did not have the access to grieving because their grief was also structurally delegitimized and also because their relationships are also not socially and legally recognized. I'm also thinking of hope and happiness among gay men because the discourse was predominantly about discrimination, stigma, police brutality, and different kinds of antagonistic relationship with state and kinship. Other than these two emotions, um, I also discuss how guilt is an important emotion among gay men for supposedly not being able to reciprocate the social, emotional, and sometimes financial support extended to them by sort of not meeting their heteronormative expectation of marriage, reproduction, and filial piety. The focus of this paper is on guilt as an emotion rather than guilt in a legal, technical, and ontological or theological sense of the term. Guilt is believed to have an internal orientation and is considered intrapsychic, which exists and occurs within the mind. Besides, um, Besides acknowledging that, this study also suggests that the causes, consequences, and functions of this intra-psychic response have substantial interpersonal and social aspects. So following um, Sara Ahmed's queer feelings and feeling queer in the book, Queer Phenomenology and also Cultural Politics of Emotion, I use queering emotion in the title of this paper, broadly thinking about how these play out in the lives of queer people in the complex ways, particularly in relation to their natal family. So the study examined 32 gay men from the eastern Indian state of Odisha. Can you talk a little bit more about the objectives of the study, which you already touched on a bit? So before I discuss the objectives of the study, uh, just to give you a little bit of context of the field site, um, I conducted this field study in 2015. I not only collected 32 ethnographic accounts of gay men who were married to women and of marriageable age. I also conducted joint interviews of men who were in partnership with each other, participant observations, and also I followed their life trajectories for the past five years. Um, I also discussed my multiple entries, exits, and revisits. Have uh, how my sorry. Um, I also discussed my. Uh, uh, I also discuss how my multiple entries, exits, and revisits have influenced and impacted the ethnographic data that I have collected. And so drawing on these uh, ethnographic data, 
I examine how guilt feeling among gay men is not just an internal orientation, but can also be induced by other people's complicitous actions. It uncovers how guilt is roused among gay men in a social system based on reciprocity. The society urges gay men to repay to their parents, siblings, and caretakers by fulfilling their heteronormative expectations. It also foregrounds how gay men respond when they are systematically made aware of their indebtedness to a series of individuals. You include this poem in your article by Rakeshrati, and I was wondering if you could read this to us because I think it illustrates the certain type of guilt that you write about very concisely. Yeah, sure, sure. So interestingly, Rakesh Ratti's book, uh, Lotus of Another Color, was one of the very first books that I came across when I was starting to research on LGBT issues in India and in the diaspora. Uh, One of the reasons I found the book very interesting, other than the very fascinating image of pink lotus on the book cover, is the sheer diversity and range of writings that it includes. And the poem goes like this. Should I listen to my heart and wrestle with this guilt? Should I lock myself inside the walls they parents would build? I want to feel their eyes with joys yet let my spirit wild. How can I find the love I seek and still remain their child? And not only is that such a beautiful poem, but again, I I feel it really encapsulates um, this dilemma. It made me wonder, is this dilemma that gay men are facing in South Asia, is that specific to that culture? Or did you look at how families in Western culture, for example, might approach the same sort of crossroad for gay men? Yeah, I I, I love this question. Uh, Yeah. So the dilemma that I discuss in the paper majorly stems from gay men's constant negotiation between heteronormative expectations and what I call homoromantic desire. On the one hand, there is a societal pressure to meet the heteronormative expectation of marriage, reproduction, and filial piety. But on the other hand, there is also a potential to engage in disparate kinds of same-sex intimacies. In order to understand the heteronormative expectation, we also need to pay very close attention to the centrality and universality of heterosexual marriage in India. So once someone attains marriageable age, they are expected to marry. Heterosexual marriages in India ensure upward social mobility and also uphold family lineage. Marriages are also transactional and are also sites of major economic activity as they involve money in the form of dowry. There is a rich corpus of scholarship on marriage and kinship in India and South Asia. Additionally, marriage is also considered as paying back to parents for their love, support and care, which is more about reciprocity and failure to do so may cause massive guilt in the gay man. Um, Many of my ethnographic protagonists uh, spoke about their indebtedness to their parents. One such narrative uh, where my respondent discusses his decision to accept the marriage proposal suggested by his parents, and I quote, I thought about it for some time and decided that after all, they are parents. I will never be happy if I go against their will. So some others also mentioned that they are the only child or only son in the family. So one of my respondents told me, and I quote, look, I'm the only son of my parents, and I know that I'll have to marry a girl sooner or later. So by citing his status as an only son of his parents, he's probably reiterating the inevitability of heterosexual marriage for progeny. 
And I also think that these experiences and social expectations are also closely embedded in the intergenerational contracts. Sometimes the guilt also stems from not being able to reciprocate as most of the gay men in small towns of Odisha believe that since parents have invested their whole lives in the well-being of children, they must reciprocate their kindness. This has been discussed by my interlocutors in majorly two different ways. One, men of marriageable age discussed how they want to convey to their parents their decision of not getting married without actually coming out to them. But another category of gay men actively look for women to marry. Sometimes they decide to come back to small towns after living in cities for years so that they can marry and use the productive and reproductive labor of women to run the household. But having said that, another significant finding of this study also shows that gay men in small towns of Odisha do not suffer in silence. Rather, they always go on to forge disparate kinds of relationships with other men. Such relationships may range from flings, short-term sexual encounters, amorous friendship, to long-term intimate romantic partnership where they cohabit. Following the theoretical framework of queer opacity by Nicholas Daviller, I also demonstrate how gay men situate themselves in position of ambivalence and engage in multiple modes of same-sex intimacies. One way to do it is through what I called uh, friendship, sex, and partnership continuum, where men not only establish friendship and engage in sexual activities with other men, but also establish partnership through quotidian intimacies and everyday domesticities in the absence of legal sanctioning and social approval. Um, this is this is also made possible because of homosociality, where same-sex friendship and intimacies are also allowed to some extent, as long as it is projected as non-sexual. And in fact, men are allowed to form different kinds of relationships with other men, as long as they take care of their marriage and familial obligations. Uh, but a few words of cautions here. Uh, as I reflect on this paper that I wrote a few years back, I also realized that a dichotomous framework of closet and coming out, heterosexual and homosexual binary, is inadequate um, in capturing the complex relationalities of gay men that is embedded in the social institution of marriage and domesticity, marriage, family, and domesticity. And this is further problematized by intersectionality of caste, class, and gender, which play out interestingly in these relationships. So when you talk about caste, class, and gender, how how does that affect this uh, problem of reciprocity, for example, which seems to be the driving force behind so much of the guilt and the burden of these gay men? Yeah, um, thank you. That's a, that's a very interesting question. Actually, uh, I think uh, particularly, you know, uh, particularly uh, related to class, I have looked at the class um, I have looked at their experiences through class analytic and optic. Uh, so major, majority of my uh, respondents were from uh, middle class, uh, educated middle class background. And uh, that definitely also impacts their lived experiences and situated realities. Uh, I'm sure working class population or upper middle class population from uh, urban uh, localities will have a very different experience than some of the respondents that I uh, sort of engaged with. Um, uh, having said that, uh, I also feel that I haven't engaged enough with the uh, optic of caste in my writing. And that is one of the limitations of the uh, 
of, of this paper in particular and i think i should be and i'll be i'll be more mindful towards the caste dynamic and caste intersectionality in the um, future studies so that's interesting to think about that dynamic uh, and i'm sure we'd love to read about a future study that focuses more on caste uh, do you feel sort of given the data that you have so far given uh, the stories that you've collected uh, would that feeling of reciprocity be more or less demanding depending on class? Does it sort of increase uh, as you go up in class, I guess? I think um, more than class, it also has to uh, do with the universality and centrality of the notion of marriage in Indian society. So irrespective of whichever class you come from, irrespective of your economic and financial status, everybody is expected to marry at some point. And, you know, this is also uh, irrespective of your sexuality. Uh, a mixed orientation marriage is sort of in inevitable. And uh, as my uh, uh, experience of field study shows, um, most of the men, even if they, they are like sort of financially independent, they have... Uh, uh, they have good jobs this uh, and even if they physically move away from the family or and then go to a city and start living there it doesn't necessarily sort of uh, make them sort of take autonomous decisions about their lives their lives their, their life is always sort of um, controlled uh, and interfered by 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 the natal family um and uh, there is always you know to in order to understand this uh, complex relationship between family and gay man the uh, theoretical framework of uh, agonistic intimacies used by um, brigupati singh and also subsequently by brian horton is is very very useful and uh, which shows that family or the domestic space is a uh, mutual space for care and violence so uh, so you know there is always this uh, um uh, th there is always a, a constant negotiation that goes on between kinship and queer uh, where uh, family can offer care but at the same time family is also capable of perpetrating uh, violence uh, so irrespective of financial status and sort of economic independence, uh, I think the heteronormative expectations also is just remains the same. Um, maybe, you know, it, it, it might offer gay men uh, greater freedom or greater autonomy in choosing to, uh, like whether severing the ties with the family or the choice to sever the ties with the family or to take up a job which is uh, which is far from home but at the same time uh, financial independence and uh, uh, economic uh, uh, you know autonomy doesn't do not really ensure um, greater control over their own lives a really fascinating study thank you again so much for talking with us today 
Thank you so much for having me here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Dr. Jay Prakash Mishra, he's the author of Queering Emotion in South Asia, Biographical Narratives of Gay Men in Odisha, India. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.